So you've got 20 moves for white and 20 moves for black. So the first move, you have 400 potential positions that could arise after one move, or one half move each, which would be a full move for the game. And and so what happens after you know five moves, it's, it's are, you're already into the billions or trillions. Hello and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Lovett, and I have with us today again, Dr. Elias Pedersen. And I'm excited to talk to Elias today. He is normally our music maestro, um, but uh, but today we're gonna talk about another one of his passions um, uh, and, and great skills that he has, and that is of chess. Yep. So I'm excited because I'm a rook when it comes to chess <laughs> yeah <good>. i see <laughs> um but uh but i'm excited to talk to talk to elias about it welcome to the show elias thanks mike great to be back and uh i guess this is our first one uh first podcast not talking about music between you and me. yeah yeah so that this will be fun this will be fun get to, get to know the other side or one of the other sides of elias where <laughs> you know it's fun. the 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 stereotype of the artist is the the brooding artist who just focuses a hundred percent on music and nothing else and his work and it's all about his work but there are other sides to us mm-hmm. yeah yeah you, you that's a, actually we could go on about that too i think rubenstein <laughs> said or or i mean he among others you know and maybe he was paraphrasing but the life you live, the richness of your life really uh, shows in your music making. So yes, I'm paraphrasing I, him, but that's, I totally believe in that. I believe that too. I, be, I believe that that somebody who's locking themselves in, in a hole to do art um, is, is going to come out as if you were locked in a hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, experiencing life, experiencing hobbies, experiencing great other great loves, I think adds to the richness of, of the beauty of, of, what we do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, um, so I'm excited to talk to you about chess. You are one of, one of the top players here in Arizona. Is that well, right? Sort of. And, and we'll get into how, how strengths are measured and ratings and things like that. But okay. uh, yeah, I, I would say my strength is, is pretty well, is pretty high uh, there. Okay. I mean, there are titled players in, in Arizona that I cannot compete with, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right fairly on. strong. Well, let's first of all let's talk about you and like your your history with chess. Like, when did you get started, and and how did this become a great love of yours? Yeah, um, well, I love and like you say, it is a great love of mine, and and it's uh, I've never been much of a hobby person. I'll first say that you know I, I speak with a lot of I speak with a lot of people, and they say music or this game or that game or a sport is sort of a hobby, and I've never never quite been that type. Maybe because I'm too competitive, and I just I put all my energy into something that I'm doing and I, I want to be the best at it, uh, which is probably why today I, I don't do as many things as I used to in high school and college. Uh, I was really spread thin, sort of jack of all trades. But um, I, I fell in love with chess pretty pretty early in my life. You know, I, I played at home. I, my parents both played a little bit and taught me how to move the chess pieces. And I would I remember playing with my dad a tiny bit. Uh, he... he I mean, I played with him as a kid and then I, you know, I didn't have contact with him for a while, but I would say he would be today, maybe a beginning club player, you know, at, at the club level. Okay. Um, he tells me he's not that strong. I, I mean, I could never beat him when I was a kid, but um, I, I played with him. Maybe I played with a couple 
uncles or my grand grandfather. And, and then um, my first friends that I played with in fifth grade, I, uh, I went to another school and, and I would finish my work early. And so with this other guy, uh, I kind of remember his name, uh, Noah Hurwitz actually. And my, uh, my teacher at the time, I love my fifth grade teacher. She said, well, if you're done, you can go in the back of the classroom and play chess. So I just started to play chess with him on this, you know, small paper board, basically small plastic pieces almost every day. And oh, wow. I, I didn't know any, you know, any strategy. I had never trained. I just played with my family and, um, and we both improved each other by playing. Uh, and then in sixth grade, I went to a, um, a fairly elite private high school, actually, in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was quite lucky to, uh, to be accepted. And they had a very strong chess team there. And that's when I really started to get in. Actually, in, in sixth grade, some of my friends said, oh, you should join the chess team. And basically, the, my friends were the types that would go to the chess team. And, um, and so I said, well, I'll think about it. And then I, I watched a few meets and I thought it was kind of scary, but uh, a lot of camaraderie that went on and a lot of focus and concentration. And, and I like that, all those aspects, um, the social aspect as well. And yeah. so then I joined really in seventh grade and I played in my first tournament in seventh grade and I actually won. I was in the novice division. I mean, the earliest, the lowest division. So they were all oh, beginners. Nothing like that gives you some But that juice. gave, yeah, that gave me a huge boost. And actually it was rated. So there's a, an organizing body in the U.S. called the USCF, the United States Chess Federation. And uh, that's, that's just the na uh, national federation. There's an international federation, FIDE, which is Federation Internationale des Echecs or something like that. I always forget if it's d'échecs or des échecs. Uh, it's French, but that organizes everything in the world. And the U.S. is sort of part of that as well. So I got a rating uh, and I'll talk about what a rating means because I think most people don't know what that is. Oh, yeah. Um, I got a rating, which was pretty high for a 13 year old at the time. And, uh, and I really started to enjoy it. So I joined my team. I, I built a lot of social ties with the people there. And, and I started playing in the, um, in the school meets. We had a school meet every month and we would, you know, go to a certain high school and, and be matched up with whichever other school had the same number of points as we did in the, in the season. And just as sports would do, you know, you'd play another sports team. Um, so we played many different different teams. And by the time I got to high school, so I, I was on the team from seventh grade through 12th grade. And we were state champions for all of that time. And uh, and then until my senior year, we were, we were co-state champions actually that year. So we, oh, we had wow. a very strong senior. My senior year was one of the three strongest teams, I believe, at, at the, in the school's history. And I, I just really got into it. I went to nationals three, three times, I think. No kidding! And, wow. Yeah, in, at the uh, high school level, I just had a blast. I mean, it was it was not just the the game, but also the social aspect of it. And, and I got to travel a little bit, and it was it was wonderful. Right. So, and and the school paid for the you know those, those trips. So, which is yeah, I mean that's just wonderful. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, that's you know it, it reminds me a lot of the the um yeah the 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 kind of um you know, feelings you have and the social aspect that you have it reminds me a lot of the, the sporting teams that I played in high school. You know, those, those, those guys that, that you're kind of in the middle of it together and fighting for each other. And, and, you know, um, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a great, great 
memories. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, I was, uh, I was an extremely shy kid. Uh, in general, I, I was shy, even though I was a performer, I was already playing violin and piano for some years by then, but a very shy, you know, I could never talk to girls, for example. Um, and as it turns out, we had a, we had a couple girls that came to the team and joined the team. Um, and that was wonderful. You know, I got to be part of that and, and have, female friends that were close to me. I was also on the science team. So science Olympiad team, and it was about half, half male, female there as well. Okay. So I got to uh, interact with a lot. And I, you know, I was in sports in high school too, soccer for middle school, but then I joined varsity, uh, varsity tennis when I was in uh, ninth grade. And, it, you know, you're on the boys team, you're on, on the girls team kind of thing. And right, there's a right. little crossover, but I didn't have many friends. It wasn't the same camaraderie I had with, uh, with the chess team and the science Olympiad team. So yeah, it just, that really, I think helped me a lot through high school. I have to say those, those tough years, had I not had that, that uh, social network and that base, uh, it would have been a lot harder. So, well, and, and let's, let's get into a little bit. Um, now I, I, I think I told you before, um, you know, we, uh, I, I know how to play chess um, and you know, I know how the base, the basic rules and, mm-hmm. and, and I want to talk about that in a second, but, mm-hmm. but you know, my strategy is basically, you know, try not to kill, get my, any of my guys killed. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a good beginning strategy actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but let's, I, I, we all, I also know that, that there's, you know, this brand new TV show, the Queens Gambit that's made mm-hmm. chess quite a bit more popular these days, which is another reason I'm excited to have you on to talk about this. So, but I think there are, there are, you know, um, maybe, maybe a surprising, maybe not amount of people that, that don't even know the basic rules mm-hmm. of chess. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And yeah, and we uh, can lay a foundation on yeah. which to talk about. Yeah. So, I mean, chess just very briefly, and there are tons of videos online. There are a lot of great YouTubers and streamers and commentators that I would, I can suggest later on. Uh, but you know, you've got 64 squares and uh, and each each army or each side has has a king and a queen, a couple rooks, a couple bishops, a couple knights, and eight pawns. And you really are are battling it out. It's a battle of the minds. Um, and I think there was a mathematician many years ago. I mean, a couple de- decades ago, that figured out what the maximum number of chess games or positions is. You know, and and this is including just everything, even even bad positions. Um, because right. when we get into AI and computers, they basically do brute force method up until recently, which I'll, I'll talk about too. But um, I think they calculated something on the order of 10 to the you know, 200th power uh, of uh, possible chess positions. You know, So that's more than the wow. stars in the galaxy and, and all that. It's just it's an incredible number that we can never wrap our head around. Um, actually, the game Go, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that has even more possibilities and options whereas a game like checkers you know it has a lot of options but might be in the 10 to the eighth power i don't know but it's it's relatively we we can figure that out you know computer can just play the jv compared to chess yeah Yeah, and and chess has always been the um the breeding ground or the testing ground rather for computers uh ever since the advent of of supercomputers um when they were when they were big in the seventies and eighties. And then, you know, the home computer became big in the eighties when I was a kid. Uh, and one of the tests was always, how can it play chess? And when I was a kid, uh, computers couldn't, couldn't play worth a darn. They, they would just get crushed by a, by a typical master. 
and I'll, I'll explain what a master means, but um, yeah. forget a grandmaster, they have no chance. And a big turning point was then in the 90s with uh, Deep Blue. I'm sure everybody Deep Blue, remembers yeah. Deep Blue. I was going to say Big Blue, but it was Deep Blue. Was yeah. the name of it. So right. Deep Blue, the first match with Kasparov, the, the then uh, world champion, um, Kasparov beat the first uh, iteration, and then the second iteration of Deep Blue, I think it was Deeper Blue or something, a couple years later, um, it was a close match, but Kasparov lost. And and from then on, you know, computers have sort of taken it over. But anyway, to go back to the, the basics, you have usually chess teachers and, and coaches, and I've coached at some of the the um, academies here in, in, um, in Arizona, and we talk about three phases of the game. So the opening, the middle game, and the end game. And the opening, there are a few different if you talk about strategies or goals that you want to, that you want to do. And the first goal is to, this is classical um, kind of technique, if you will. But first goal is to get your pieces out, you know, into good squares where they can control uh, as many other other pieces or squares uh, to control the center and to protect your King. So if you can do do those uh, three things within the first 10, 12 moves or so, that's, that's great. Uh, then you get into the middle game where a lot more strategic planning comes into play and, and uh, you know, trading of pieces. And then, you know, you get into the end game where it's very calculating into, uh, like, if I do this, he does that. I think a lot of people, uh, the layman, have the idea about chess that, oh, well, I can't think that far in advance, right? as if that's like a, a thing. Yeah, of course, we do have to calculate, and people do calculate where... Right. Um, where you think if I do X, he does Y, I do Z, he does A, that kind of thing. But the problem with that, uh, and we'll get into the brute force method of computers, the problem is that it branches off so much so quickly that mm-hmm. um, it, it's impossible to really calculate every possibility. So what what great grandmasters do and calculators is they knock out about 99% of the possibilities afterwards. You know, there are things called forced move so if i if i play a check you know which is a forcing move or i take a piece you're almost obligated to take the piece back or at least move out of check sometimes right. you can do an intermediary move but but that next step in the in the calculation process is pretty straightforward so well and, mo- it, kinda, and it definitely gives you the upper hand if, if you're able to if, if you have you're a able forcing to force move. the action yeah and and most people believe it or not they could calculate two or three moves in advance they just don't realize it i mean it's most people could see like if i do this he has to do that but that's not very hard and that's already two moves right there so um i'm not i since we don't have really a visual medium i'm not going to go over all of the rules but um you know i would just go online and watch how you know the pawn can move one or two squares forward at the beginning um I, I think the way chess is taught as well is it's a little backwards um one of the chess coaches and teachers from many years ago, uh, Lasker, Emmanuel Lasker, he was a world champion. He used to coach and teach his kids, his students that um, you have to learn the essence of each piece first before you look huh. at strategy and, and um, you look at problems and s- start to solve those. And I think there's something to that. I I think today we we get too much into, okay, learn this checkmate pattern, learn this, o- you know, memorize this opening. Right. And that doesn't really help very much to, to where, where if you if you know if you're thinking in terms of what can this pawn do yeah, for me exactly or what can this you know what kind of what kind of things can the the knight do mm-hmm. the other 
pieces can't. Yeah. So he often started his training with just one piece at a time and, and exploring the possibilities of how that would move. You know, the knight, for example, that's, that's the uh, toughest one to pick up if you're a beginner, because it moves in an L shape, two up and one over or one up and two over. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it's the only piece that can jump other pieces, including your own pieces. So that's a little tricky, but once you get the basic moves of how the pawns move, how the king moves, you know, one square in any direction, how the queen moves, the um, castling is slightly difficult um, to understand, but it's not too bad. The I think the most difficult rule uh, to explain is en passant, and that's actually the newest rule to chess. And I say newest, I mean, it's from the 1700s. But um, at the time, like, oh, are they still are they still updating the, yeah. the rule book? <laughs> yeah, there, well, there are chess variants which we can talk. But but the classical right. game of chess, yeah, no no rules have changed since the 1700s. And uh, the at the time, uh, chess was you know between two men. Of course, it was only be, and usually rulers of the state or or wealthy people, and they might. Um, go to the drawing room in a beautiful mansion and play a game of chess. And so it was kind of the battle of wits and it was ungentlemanly to have a draw, which today means you split the point. You know, it's, it's pretty even back yeah. then. If you, if you had a drawn position or whatever, somebody had to take a risk and, and push forward. And, uh, and often that person that took the risk lost because it was truly a, mm-hmm. a, an even position. Right. And so they created this uh, this rule because the both players would kind of interlock their pawns and create these fortresses or these walls and you you couldn't break through the barrier. It was very difficult. Ah. So they would uh, purposefully if a, a, an opponent's pawn was well advanced into your position you could move two squares up uh, on the first pawn move and then uh, just block the position. And so they they were finding all of these players were blocking the positions to avoid fights. Uh, I mean, fights on the bat on the chessboard. Yeah. And so they created this new move called en passant, which is French. It's in passing. And so you can take diagonally. It's hard to explain with words, but you can basically take diagonally as if they had moved one square instead of two squares, uh, because pawns are the only pieces that capture that move forward, but capture diagonally. So right. I, I know it'd be a lot easier in a visual medium just to, to show these things. Well, I, I'm trying to think, because I, I mean, for what you're describing, like, I don't think I've ever tried that kind of movie. How rare is that kind of movie? It's, uh, it's pretty rare in, uh, un- until you get to the club level, uh, because most people just don't know how it works or they're confused about it. Once you get to the club level, it, it does it does occur, or at least... The threat of it could occur, uh, could occur to stop people from moving their pawns in such a manner. Gotcha. Um, okay. So that, that's a tricky, that's a tricky move. But I think most people will will get that. Um, the other nice thing, if I'm talking about a position or an opening, uh, chess notation is very helpful. And there's an old notation which is called descriptive notation, which I don't use and I don't know very well. And there's a newer notation. I mean as in the last 50 or 60 years, called algebraic notation. It's pretty simple to uh, to pick up. And I think anybody who reads a, a newspaper, for those that do still, and they have the chess column, um, they usually have the uh, the moves written in, in uh, old notation. Yeah, I, but now they're oh, starting they, to do algebraic. So I'll, I'll just give a quick uh, refresher for some of those or an intro to others. 
Um, right. the, the board is divided into uh, eight letters, which are the columns up and down, and eight numbers, one through eight. So if you're looking at a chessboard, you know, head on, the lower left-hand corner um, is going to be a, uh, is going to be, let me see, a dark square. And that's mm-hmm. going to be A1. So as you move to okay. the right, uh, I'm, I'm going from the white perspective. So if you're on the white side with the white pieces, if you go to the right of the board, it's going to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. Uh, that's eight letters. And so the eighth column to okay. the right would be the H column. And then the first row next to you or on the bottom would be one. And then going to the top of the board would be eight. So any square yeah. can be represented like in a, in a map if you're reading you know, go to section K-12 or whatever, or K-5. That's how the, the chessboard is. So if I say, with, with a very good player, if I just say C-4, people know where that square is. I know where that square is. You know, it's, right. it's over two columns and up four squares. It happens to be a light square. I just know that square because there are many positions where a bishop could go to that square or a pawn could go to that square on the first move. So the move... Um, the square C4 could be a good target. And once you play a lot more chess and you see the board, you start to see the squares as the combination of letters and numbers. So if you told me any combination of an A through H and a 1 through an 8, I could tell you where that is and what color that, that square is. Um, and that's and, not and, very hard. And, and, uh, and probably you can you start to understand maybe some, some squares are more strategic than others. And, and uh, obviously it's moving as the game goes on, but... But in general, I'm sure there are squares that that, that certain players try to, you know, kind of like having kind of like having the high ground exactly. in, 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 a, in battle. a battlefield. Well, actually, yeah. So I mentioned before one of the strategies in the opening is to control the center. The center would be represented by the by those four squares. So if you have an eight by eight, you know, and you move in two squares from each side, you're going to have a a square in the very center of of four squares, and those squares are. Um, D4 and, and E5, E4 and E5. So that's those are the four central squares. And so when we talk okay. about controlling the center, it's basically those four squares that you want to control. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's let's. So um, you know, and it's 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 interesting to me, like um, or cool with that kind of. Um, ability to go to uh, of being able, um, what's it? What what was the word that, that you used? That notation. To, 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 notation. Yeah. yeah, to have that is is you could actually recreate games. You can recreate classic games. You can you can try to understand what what great chess players are thinking and doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I can really see that as a helpful teaching tool. It becomes the language. You know, if we're talking about. Um, music, you know, of course we talk about music and I said, well, there's a quarter note here or a half note or a whole note that you know what I'm talking about. Uh, right. A non-musician. Or I, I might say that that section is allegro, which means fast note, or, mm-hmm. or this, this is in four, four time. You know, we have a lexicon, we have a vocabulary that we talk about. Uh, and the chess vocabulary is, is pretty simple. It's just, uh, talking about the basic moves uh, and the squares and if you know what those are i could rattle off an entire chess game with just that so if i said like e4 e5 you know knight f3 knight c6 bishop b5 um a grandmaster or even even a strong player would easily be able to follow what i'm doing and that opening that i just described uh 
has has a particular na name to it. It's called the Spanish opening or the Roy Lopez. Uh, and so that for those of you listening, you might not have followed all those moves, uh, but basically you you say the square if it's just moving a pawn, and you say the knight or the piece plus the square if you're moving a piece. So I said e4, which means the pawn on the white side moves to the square e4. Then e5, okay. the pawn on the black side moves to e5. Then I knight f3, so the knight on the white side that can move to f3 goes to f3. And then knight c6, the knight on the black side that can go to c6 goes to c6, etc. Okay. Um, and you get that. You can set up that position at home pretty quickly with that method. So, yeah. What a, what other stuff? <laughs> There's so much stuff to talk about, but um, I don't know where do you, where do you want to go with rules, with strategy, rating, That's how strengths are measured. We have a lot of options. That's very cool. Well, let's let's get, let's talk a little bit about. Um, um, I'm trying to think. Let's talk a little bit about strategy. You mentioned you mentioned there's the three aspects to the game. There's the the opening where you're trying to mm -hmm. get in, get your players in position, protect your your king, and um, and what was the third thing you're trying to control? Yeah, so control the center. So the three phases of the, the game: center. the opening, middle game, and end game. And in the opening, you have three goals basically: get out your pieces or develop your pieces, control the center, and protect your king. Usually by castling or or by stacking pieces around him so maybe you know let's let's give our audience maybe a little little hint mm -hmm. maybe what are what are one or two big mistakes that 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 beginners make mm -hmm. in their opening moves or even the thinking about their opening moves? yeah the biggest thing that that when we watch especially kids play is that they just there's so much to think about on the board and they lose track of of threats so as soon as you make you know the first move on a chessboard the opening move, you have eight pawns that can move one or two squares. So that's already 16 possibilities. And the knights can move out to four different squares. So you've got 20 moves for white and 20 moves for black. So the first move, you have 400 potential positions that could arise after one move each. Or one half move each, which would be a full move for the game. And and so what happens after you know five moves, it's, it's are, you're already into the billions or trillions. And, right. <laughs> and what happens with, with the beginners is that they might move, you know, first of all, a lot of pawns out and they don't realize that you need to be getting pieces out as well. You can't, if you think of, a, of it in battle terms, you know, a, a general would never send out just the infantry and one right. division of the infantry to do all the work. Of course, no, he'd get the cavalry involved. He'd get the Navy, you know, all the different sectors involved to overwhelm the opponent. Um, and so, most beginners don't know how to get their pieces out effectively or quickly or to the right squares. And even more basic than that, you know, somebody might attack a piece and they just don't see that it's being attacked. So my, my advice to anybody that's playing at the beginner level is, you know, do a quick check, do a mental check of a uh, checklist of all your pieces, you know, how, wh which of them are being attacked and by which other piece can I, can I do anything about it? You know, sometimes you can just uh, take the piece that's attacking you. Sometimes you have to run away because there's no way. Sometimes you can block. You know, there, there are many different uh, approaches or, or ways to deal with threats. And when I coach, uh, when I coach students, we have a lot of workshops and, and worksheets to go over 
that kind of stuff. And we give them different problems to say, okay, find the threat, analyze the threat. How many ways can you get out of those threats? Mm. As an example. So the, the biggest mistakes at the very early level, very beginning level, and I think you're probably above this level, but just uh, looking at your pieces and seeing basic threats and attacks. And, and then the next thing is not just moving one piece, trying to get all of your pieces out and um, coordinated together. And that takes some time. Right. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's most of it. And then once, once you get past that stage, you're already, a, you can play, you know, and then, then it's a little bit more complicated than that. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, um, and, and so let's say we're, we're getting out, we're getting now into that middle section, like, um, and, and you said you want to control, why is the middle of the board so important? Well, it's like in a battle. Um, if you're, con- if you're on a hill, you, you can see everything around you from the middle of the board. You, you can see everything else on the battlefield basically. So if you take, um, if you take any piece, let's let's start with the queen because in chess, interestingly, the queen is the most powerful piece, not the king. The king is the goal you're trying to checkmate the king by base, basically putting him in an attack an attack situation where he can't get out of it either by blocking or taking or running away. So, um, but the king is limited in its movements and its capabilities. It can only move one square. The queen can move as many squares as are open, either diagonally or in a column or row, so up, down, or diagonally. So it has it has a huge range. So let's just have an empty chessboard. And if you put a queen in the corner of the chessboard, um, she she has a decent amount of scope, but but not a ton. You know, she can go up and down and on the lot what we call the long diagonal, which was is eight eight uh, diagonal squares. But if you put her mm-hmm. in the middle of the board, she's got the two diagonals to go off of and up and down and sideways so you've got a lot more range and a lot more squares that you control you know same thing if you take a knight is the most obvious example if you put a knight in the corner of the board it can only go to um you know to two two different different squares basically from the corner so if you put a knight on the, the square a1 right it can only go to um to b3 go to b3 or it could go to c2 so if you're if you have a chessboard at home or even draw one out and, and put and label you know a through h and one through h, um, the the knight only has two squares where it can go from the corner. From the edge of the board, it can go three squares, but from the center of the board, it can go to eight squares. So you've got yeah. a lot more potential and attacking power and defending power, by the way. So and that's and that's interesting. Like I, I if maybe the most common mistake I seem to make other than not seeing something that I should have seen, but is, is the, um, uh, is getting my knight to maybe not in the corner, but on the edge. Mm-hmm. And then it's so easy for somebody to trap me. I'm like, oh, okay, now I can't do nothing. That, yeah. that knight's basically neutralized. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, is that's exactly it. And, uh, and there's an old chess saying that, that goes knights on the rim are grim. <laughs> and not always there are some occasions where they work but that's at, at pretty high level if you can figure that out but mo- for the most part we teach kids to you know just develop um open up the center with a pawn move so it opens up to bishop's lines get your two knights out in the center castle your king you know the first eight or ten moves are pretty much 
they play they play themselves if, if you do it correctly. Now you might not get the most dynamic or the strongest position, but you'll get a reasonable position. And I think if most people learn the basic strategies of why they do that, they, they can become you know a decent player in the neighborhood uh, with with that. So I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, in some ways, kind of the most interesting piece to me, and that is, that's the pawn. You know, it, it's almost become a cliche to say, you know, sacrifice the pawn, mm-hmm. you know, it becomes, we say it in other terms outside of chess all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and yet in some ways, because it can attack diagonal, because if you can get it to the edge end of the board, you can turn it into anything, including mm-hmm. a, another queen. Yeah. It can be an incredibly powerful um, piece, mm-hmm. but to talk about the, the, the pawn a little bit and like, and, and when, when are, is it good times to maybe sacrifice and when is like, do we over like, wh- what's your th- philosophy on that? Yeah. Well, the, the term sacrifice, first of all, is just, uh, giving up. Usually we talk about giving up material. So when we're talking about material, each piece has sort of an assigned or accepted material. It, it varies. So the King is infinite because if you capture the king or you don't really capture the king you checkmate him and corner him um that's infinite but the queen is typically thought of as nine points the rook is five points the bishop and knight are three points each but some people prefer i prefer bishops slightly to the knight so maybe like 3.2 and then the pawn is typically one point but um so if you if you count the the material at the beginning of the game of course you're you're both even and there's a lot of material but what some people will do is give up a pawn, which is you know only one point, to gain a lot of other advantages. So some of the other advantages that you can take that you can have in chess besides material. Material is the most obvious one. That's like in music, if you talk about what are the notes that are written on the page, um, that's right. obvious. But you know what are the dynamics of those notes? How fast do you play those notes? All that, all those dynamics are in chess too. So in chess we have. Um, something called uh, space advantage. So that means maybe you have more of your army advance and you have a lot more room to move around in and a lot more room to maneuver your pieces. That can be a very good advantage because even with slightly fewer pieces, if they're more mobile, uh, then you have more attacking chances. Whereas the defender, if they can't really move their pieces very well, they're stuck. Uh, and if they do move their pieces to a certain square, they they lose them, and then then it goes back to material advantage for you. So right. sometimes people give up a pawn to get a large space advantage, where whereby they can have a lot more freedom. And sometimes it works. You know, if if they can get a, a great space advantage and convert that later to a material win, great. What um, what the other side tries to do is to prove them wrong to say, you know, what you gave up that one pawn, and now I'm going to try to defend like. I won't say it on your podcast, but uh, defend, you know, <laughs> yeah. like the like the Dickens, and right. and see if I can hold on to that one point advantage and even everything out else out, and then I'll have I'll have a one point advantage in the end. So space is a very interesting one. the The advantage of time is another one. So time is very simply how many um, we call it in chess actually tempos or tempi. So how many moves ahead are you? So if I were to get, let's say, four moves just for free at the beginning of the game, I could get very easy. In fact, there would be a checkmate one, two, three, four. I could checkmate you. So if somebody has an extra move or extra two moves uh, or extra three moves, that could be quite an advantage because every 
half move. So I'm sorry, you, I think you lost me. What does that mean to get an extra move? Well, let's let's say for example, okay, White starts the game, so they already have a slight advantage because they get to dictate the play. Um, so they start by opening, you know, how they want and controlling the squares that they want, and Black sort of has to respond. But what if for the first move, White just played his knight out? Black played something, and then White played his knight back to the original starting square. Gotcha. And then okay. Black played something else. It's basically giving two free moves to Black to to do whatever he wants. So he could have moved right. two pawns in the center and gotten started to get his bishops out, where you just moved a knight back and forth. Uh, so that time uh, is is very important. Uh, and and also, if you move a pawn out, let's say you move move a pawn up one square, and then five moves later, you move that pawn up another square. Why didn't you move it up two squares the first time? Right. You you could have saved some time. Now, some openings require that you move it up once first to to block something. And then later you can, you can move it up two squares or, uh, you know, another square. But that concept of time is very important. And so at my level, you know, one, one move or, or two moves could mean the difference between a win and a loss or a win and a draw at the grandmaster level for sure it's yeah the, the time that you lose it's so important because uh if if somebody's attacking you they have one move you have one move and if they're creating multiple threats with one of their moves and you can only defend against some of those threats you're falling behind every move a little bit at a time mm-hmm. and eventually you're going to cave in so that's another advantage that we can use by sacrificing that pawn. So is it worth sacrificing one point to get a lot of extra tempos? Sometimes. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. It really depends. There are some openings, including the Queen's Gambit, and we'll get into that opening and why the, the show is it's called that. But that is basically gambiting a pawn or, or sacrificing a pawn. It's a, it's a temporary sacrifice in that opening un- unless you play an extremely sharp line where black black gets an extra pawn but if black tries to hang on to that pawn it can often be very dangerous uh, for him ah, because gotcha. he he spends you know four or five moves just to defend that pawn and then he weakens a lot another part of his position and white gains a lot of time on that on that side of the board we talk about queen side of the board so which is a through d the queen is uh, starts on the, the position d1 that's a starting position, and the king starts on e one. I should have, I should have mentioned maybe where all the pieces start in case you're wondering how they how they are set up. So the pawns are on the on your second row. So if you're looking from uh, a to, to h, it's going to be a two b two c two etc. Uh, black pawns are going to be on a seven b seven c seven etc. And then the pieces go. The, the rooks are on the outside. The knights are next. The bishops are next. And then for the king and queen, the, the way I remember it is the queen goes on her color. So if you're white, the queen goes on a white square, which Go would be white. D1. If you're black, the queen goes on a black square, which is D8. So the left side of the board, if you're looking from the white perspective, is the queen side and the black side, uh, the, the king side. The right side of the board is called the king side. Anyway, in the queen's gambit, it's um, you're gambiting a pawn on the queen side. And black tries to defend it on the queen side, and then white makes a lot of headway on the king side where the king is, and often gets a knockout blow because black has spent too much time defending that one extra pawn. Uh, 
Because they're focusing on the wrong, yeah. Yeah, it's like, let me save this one point of material out of all the points. You know, if you add up all the points, you've got, was it 19 plus uh, 6 times 12, 31 plus 8. So, you know, you start with 39 points per side. One point, eh, not, not a big deal. Right, but but because it's at the beginning, and you know you're trying to maintain all your material at the beginning, especially, um, I imagine, and you're if you're and, and that's where the action's happening. Um, you can get, I, I imagine, it's because you kind of get lulled, get hyper focused on that one um, situation. Yeah. Well, usually, this a sacrifice, at least from an opening perspective, is at the beginning because losing one point out of thirty nine is not as big a deal as. When you've traded pieces and you're both at 15, and then ah, you sacrifice a point. Sense. So 14, 14 versus 15 is a big difference from 38 versus 39. <laughs> 38 versus, yeah. right. So, okay. I have, I've got two more strategy questions sure. and then I want to talk about ratings. Yeah. So, um, we, let's talk a little bit about like the end game situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe two, maybe two quick ones like one where one where you're kind of need to be on, you're on the defensive maybe you're 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 down several several pieces and and, and they've definitely had the upper hand on your king and then maybe on the other the flip it where you're on an offense mm-hmm. um what what how should we be thinking i mean it's so hard you know because every game is different and obviously you know experience covers all but but how what 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 are the main what's your main thought process mm-hmm. when you're in those situations? Yeah, it's interesting that the training method for uh, when when I was getting serious about chess, I always heard this from people, and I, I wondered why, and now I know why. But they said, uh, "Don't learn the opening first, or don't start with myth. Yeah, you can start with tactics. Tactics are where you get puzzles, and you're just looking for." You know, okay, I'm attacking a piece. What piece am I attacking? And if I take this piece, what, what happens after? Very quick, boom, boom, boom. You know, one, two, three. Right. And, and those are very important. People need to study tactics. And, and that's where its strategy gets developed. And you you learn what different, um, like, you know, what a, you learn what a pin is, what a skewer is. Uh, and those are little, little positions you can practice. But the opening, most people think, oh, can you just tell me the first thing? moves i want to memorize those moves and, and i think <laughs> right. well you know it might you might be lucky if you get those 10 moves in but i would say 99.9 of the time or 99 percent you're not going to get those exact 10 moves in because somebody's going to do something else you're not expecting and so it's right. worth almost worthless to as a beginner at least to memorize opening moves like that. opening ideas and strategies and principles yes but not openly opening lines yes um and i got interested into in learning books when I was around 14, 15, and I started really studying certain openings and certain lines. And we'll get into that. One of my favorite uh, openings is called the Sicilian defense as for black really. And, uh, but it's only in response to a specific white move first that he does. And, uh, and that's E4. Oh, so when you see, when you see him do a specific thing, you go, okay, this is a strategy I'm going to use for to start out with. Yeah. Or what I will say is, my strategy is sort of similar, but the way I get there and the positions I feel comfortable playing with my strategies and with the, you know, you know like anybody playing, uh, let's take a sports example um, in, in, uh, in basketball. Maybe somebody's a really good three-point shooter, right? So mm-hmm. they're maybe like a Larry Bird. 
Okay, I, I'm dating myself a little bit. But, um, <laughs> I know who you're talking about. Yeah, so Larry Bird, he's a great three-point shooter. Um, you don't want to put Shaquille O'Neal on the three-point. He's, he's not a great three-point. He's a great center. You know, he's going right. to dunk. He's going to be a, maybe a good guard. He'll be the center. So that for him, he's whenever he plays on a basketball team, whoever he plays, he's going to be the center. And that's going to be his strength. Larry Bird... Yeah, he can he can dunk, of course. Yeah, he can guard, of course. He's you know, he's going to be the three point shooter. So same thing in chess. Some some people are more. I don't want to say just offensive or defensive players, but people have different styles of of chess, and so you tend to play openings that get you to positions that suit your style. That's that's the best ah, way gotcha. to play it. So I might play a Sicilian, and everybody plays the Sicilian defense. It's the most common. Actually, at the beginner level, E4, E5 is the most common. Once you get to club level, E4, C5 is probably the most common. And uh, and that's the start of the Sicilian. So everybody plays Sicilian. But there are many variations of the Sicilian, and it depends on your temperament which variation you tend to choose. And I I like to choose a very sharp variation that, I, uh, that really became popular in the 60s, and then it died for a little while, and then it became popular in the 80s again. And... Some world champions put up, and I started to learn it in the '90s. Uh, and I even did a senior high school project. I wrote a book on the variation and analyzed a couple of my games. Uh, I wasn't a very strong player at the time, but it was, it was a good learning experience. And now, actually, the current world champion, uh, he and a couple other strong grandmasters have brought it to life in the last decade or so. Oh so, wow! Um, I know I'm I'm kind of digressing a bit here, but. But uh, the point of the opening is basically to get something to suit your style. And so you shouldn't memorize an opening. That's where I was getting. To. But um, what I said I heard from, from a player when I was younger, and I didn't know why, is start the end game first. So learn from the end game first and then backtrack to get to those positions. So, for example, my opening preparation when I talk about that, like when I play a tournament and most players play tournaments, they, they have to prepare quite a bit actually in advance and, mm-hmm. and really study for a while because they're grueling. Tournaments are extremely grueling. Um, I played my, the most grueling tournament I played in was the world open in Philadelphia, 2006 or five. I can't, I think five or six. Um, wow. I played in my particular division. There are a lot of divisions. I was in the B division and, um, you know, I, I, you have two games a day. The games are, be, they, you have maximum of six hours. Most of the games last between two and five hours. And uh, you have two per day. So there were some days where I had two very long games and I was in the chess hall for 11 hours. Uh, oh, wow. and, so, and the amount of calories that you burn thinking and, and going and sweating and you know, nervousness, it's, you burn a lot. So, and that was five days of that. So, you, you, you know, I, I might have lost a few pounds during that tournament. And uh, I don't think people realize like how it's funny. Like again, the the stereotype, you know, we watch like, you know, uh, searching for Bobby Fisher, you know, you see like chess masters having breakdowns and you Mm -hmm. see like chess masters, like sweating bullets and doing great. Like, and, and, and I think the layman just goes like, dude, just move the piece. Yeah. Right. Right. You know? (laughs) Yeah. But the amount of, it's true. The amount of pressure and the time, like anybody, that has gone into higher edit at all. And, and the amount of yep. studying that it takes, you know, you multiply that with the pressure that's, that's involved too. 
Right. Uh, it's, it's a lot. The grandmasters in their big tournaments and at the world championship level, it's uh, it would be easy for the duration of a tournament for a grandmaster to lose ten pounds over that. Now we're that we're, we're gonna we're definitely cycle. gonna we're. We're definitely going to do a part two, but I want to talk about a couple of things because um, uh, um, I think, when we, especially when we talk about tournaments um, and, and how does your strategy change? In fact, I have a kind of a specific question because I've seen these timed tournaments. I know not all tournaments are timed. I don't think. Uh, yes, they are. In some, okay, so they're all some matter, yeah. But yeah, okay, and I'll, so, I'll get to. I know what you're going to ask, but hang on, let me let me go back. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. second for go for back. the strategy with the end game. So you said, oh, how thank to you. Develop. Yeah, <laughs> finish my first question first. Yeah, when I I went on so many tangents, but um, the the biggest thing that I teach that I like people to learn from the beginning is just you know how do you checkmate with this limited amount of material, and mm. and then you kind of build up from that. So. Where the first thing I usually teach is a king versus a king, and then one side, let's say white, has a queen and a rook. Okay, so you can you can uh, set this up at home. Let's say the white king is on a one, the black king is on h five, and you have a white king on a white queen on b two, and a white rook on c one. And so this is called the stepladder method, or some people call it the steamroller. Uh, checkmate method and basically the uh the two the rook and the queen are cutting off lines uh vertically you know or horizontally in this case and so basically you're just doing a step ladder approach like the rook is moving up two squares and then the queen is moving up two squares and they're helping each other go up and close off those lines for the king so you're creating kind of a, an invisible electric fence Goes across because the, the huge disadvantage that the king has for those who don't know is it can only move one space, it can move in any direction, but it can only move one space, right? Right, so if you can cut that off, that escape square or that escape line off, and then check him, you know, and so he has to keep retreating back. Um, from the position I gave you, you, you can checkmate within I think it's six moves or something. So I would do like rook to uh c4, the king's on h5, so the king could move to like g5. I don't know if you can all follow this, and I'm just doing it off the top of my head. So then you do a queen to b5 check. The king cannot stay on the fifth uh, rank, and he cannot go to the fourth rank. So he has to go somewhere to the sixth rank. So let's say he does king to f6. Then I can do rook to c6 check. He can't, again, go to the fifth. So he's got to go to the seventh rank. Wherever he goes, then it doesn't matter. Queen to b7 check. He has to go to the eighth rank, and then queen uh, rook to c8 checkmate. So the, the king has been trapped. So getting that that pattern down, it's a very simple pattern to look at and to visualize and to do on a chessboard. And a kid, I mean, I've taught five-year-olds and they can pick that up within, yeah. within a lesson. And they can do that. And then after that, you give them two rooks and see if they can do the same thing. Now, the difference with two rooks is that, um, or I should say, with a queen and the rook, if the queen's behind the rook or on the outside of where the, the oppo opponent's king is, the, uh, the queen is always protecting the rook diagonally. So you can just do that stepladder approach and, and not be stopped. With two rooks next to each other, they don't protect each other unless they're on the same line. So the king could theoretically get close and take one. So when that happens, if the king is pretty close, you just move the rook all the way to the other side of the board. As long as you keep the two rooks staggered, then you can do the same method on the other side of the board. Mm. So a beginner, you know, again, it just takes uh, a few minutes to, to show that on a board and they get it. So once uh, a beginner gets that 
idea for the ending, then you start to, to take away pieces and make it harder. So then it's just a king and a queen versus uh, an, oppos an opposing king. And then you have to do this corralling method where you build a fence and uh, you basically corral the king into a corner, bring the other, bring your king over and then checkmate. And then you do the same thing with a rook. It's a little harder where you've got to use your king as well to help corral. So once you can get through these levels of uh, check, what we say checkmating patterns, then you can always say, okay, well, if I could get to an ending where I have an extra rook, then I know how to win. Uh, right. And so that kind of, that starts to dictate how you play this. The middle game is, and at, at the beginner club level, I mean, they're just people losing pieces left and right. You know, somebody's attacking my queen, I don't even see it. And then I'm attacking their knight. They don't see that. Every piece is just on piece. Material flying everywhere. Exactly. So nobody knows. I mean, uh, when I watch some of those games, it's tough because they might go for five moves where, where a kid is in check and they don't even know. Nobody knows that he's in check and we can't say anything. So if we're tournament directors. And so then they right. figure out like, wait, I just, how did I take your king? That, you know, um, but even <laughs> at a slightly higher level, you might drop a, a pawn, but then you win a rook and then he, you drop a queen and then you win two bishops. Like it goes wildly back, back and forth. So if you can get to the ending where you know you're up a queen or you're up just a rook, and you know how to win that position, you, you'll be fine. Um, gotcha. And then you kind of get go back from that. So I've I've studied a lot of end games, and I feel actually the strongest part of my game is my my end game. So uh, if I'm fairly even with somebody in the end game, I mean, at my level, we're not dropping lots of pieces, and and if we do, I just resign. There's no point. If I'm playing somebody at my level and I'm down a rook in a long game, there's no point to play. I just resign. Uh, right. Uh, unless I'm playing online and I play very fast games and I try to win on time, which is another issue, which we'll get. I think your question is about time, but um, yeah. we uh, we just resign. But at the at the lower club levels, I would just suggest keep playing. You know, your opponent might make a big mistake and, and the tide will turn in your favor. Um, and just study the the positions at the end and get better at those, and then kind of uh, you, you learn a lot more about how pieces work in harmony with one another by studying the end game. Yeah. yeah okay. So anyway, you're going to ask about time controls, I think. Control, right, right. And I think there's like two, two main things with that. First of all, I, it, my understanding is if you're in a time, you lose. Yes. So, so you do have to control your time, but what is most important? Making the right move. Yeah. <laughs> saving time. <laughs> Yeah, it's a balance. Well, I say yes, uh, definitively. Actually, it's it's yes only 99.9% .9 of the time. There, right. there are some occasions where um, if you lose on time, you don't lose the game. And that's only if the position is such that um, the opponent has not enough material to actually checkmate you. So let's say you're you're with a king and a queen and you're attacking your opponent, you know, clearly you have the, and they just have a king left. Clearly you have the upper hand. Maybe it's only going to take five more moves until you checkmate, but your, your flag runs out. And nowadays it's much less likely that that happens because everything is digital. And most mm. of the time controls now have a, have a delay built into them, which I can, I, I can explain. But um, if for some reason your flag were to fall, which means you run out of time, because traditionally the chess clocks they have two dials in them and there's 
the the minute hand or hour hand hits a uh, a little flag, a red flag, and once that dial that dial goes past the midnight hour, then the flag, the red flag falls, and then you can tell that you've lost some time. So once your flag falls, okay. you have technically lost some time, but your opponent has no material left. So even if he had infinite time, he could never win the game. So in that case, uh, the game would be declared a draw, and both of you would get half a point. So typically, a loss, you get zero points. A win, you get one point. And a draw, each player gets half a point, which can be very useful in a tournament. So if you have nine rounds in a tournament, uh, the winner doesn't always win nine games. Sometimes the winner yeah. wins two games or three games, but they draw the rest of the game, so they've racked up half points. So it's potential you could win with six and a half points or seven points. Um, so, so it is like a, a strategy is like you know, it's like the, the Warren Buffett rule of, of of investing. First rule is don't lose money. Yeah, you know, so first rule of chess is don't lose. At least get a half a point. Yeah, the the problem there are some players that are known as sort of draw specialists. They're one at the top <laughs> top right now. He's uh, I think number. The number seven in the world or six Anish Giri. And he's a, okay. he's an India uh, from India, but actually he plays for the Netherlands, the Dutch national team. And he's known for, like, it's almost impossible to beat him, but by the same token, he doesn't win very many games. <laughs> so, you know, it, his, his record is often just tons of draws. Whereas other players, um, you know, one of the American grandmasters that comes to mind is just very, this very aggressive player, but, he he often gets himself in, into trouble, and I don't think he's in the top ten right now. But he was always always in the top ten since I was a kid. Uh, well, I mean, he was always a strong player, but for the last twenty years, he's been really really top echelon. His name is Hikaru Nakamura, and you know he's so aggressive that he might in a tournament he might win four games, whereas this other guy will win zero. But he might lose five, you know. So. Right. Or he'll he'll win four, he'll lose three, and he'll draw two, whereas the right. other guy might win one, lose one, and and draw seven. Um, so it's, it's wow, that's quite different. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, so time um, time limits. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so when we talk, uh, they have gotten faster over the years. When I was playing in tournaments, we talk about classical chess or standard chess, but nowadays things are faster and faster in our in our everyday life. Um, Rapid chess has become, or even speed chess, or bullet chess is what they call it, or even lightning chess, which is extremely fast, and that's what I usually play. Uh, that's become much more popular because it's fun to watch, uh, and mm -hmm. I don't think people realize just how how much fun chess is. And when you get to really understand the game, it's it's there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, it's portrayed slightly incorrectly in in popular culture, but. I have to say it's been done pretty well in a couple couple instances, like searching for Bobby Fischer. Mostly it's pretty good, and, and Queen's Gambit is mostly pretty good. Uh, and so in a, in a standard tournament game, uh, the, the typical time controls I used to play, uh, and I haven't played in a tournament in 15 years, so I'll keep that in mind. My, my rating, actually, which we'll talk about, is, is lower than my strength, and I think a lot of players would say that. Like, oh, I should be higher rated. But uh, right. in my case, I mean, I've beaten a lot stronger players than my, my over-the-board OTB rating, uh, which is which is registered and recognized by USCF because uh, you have to play in their sponsored tournaments to gain oh. a rating. Okay. And you have to play a certain number of games, 
against other players with ratings to get that. So anyway, um, my rating is fairly low compared to where my strength is. But um, uh, when when I used to play in tournaments, the standard time control would be 40 and 2 SD1, which means 40 moves in two hours, sudden death one hour. Uh, and so in the first two hours, you've got to make 40 moves, uh, which mm. sounds like two hours is a long time. But but some of the moves you you think a long time, not maybe the first five or 10 moves, but in the middle game, maybe the 15th move, you, you might spend a long time on, on a move. Uh, and there's some grandmasters that get in real time trouble and some others that just speed through things and have no trouble at all. Uh, and once you get through those first 40 moves, then you have one hour to complete the rest of the game. So theoretically, you could take two hours and 59 minutes, you know, uh, to complete a game. And and the longest game I actually ever played in a tournament um, was where I used almost all my time. And he also used close to all of his time. And the whole game was about five and a half hours. Oh wow! Yeah, and and the longest time That's I spent, intense. yeah, it was it was intense. And the longest time I spent on a single move, you know. So I I used to tell my chess students because they they play in tournaments, and at that level, the beginning, you know, you might have thirty minutes for the whole game. That's just right. what it is. You know, it's still long enough to keep notation. Thirty minutes is sort of the shortest amount of time for you to be able to call it a, a decent standard game where you can keep notation and, and mark down the moves. And, and I played a lot of 30 minute games um, at a chess club back home. And I played a lot of strong players with, with that time limit, but um, they, most of the kids that play, they use two minutes of that, you know, because they've already lost all their pieces by the end of two minutes right. because they're moving so quickly. So I, I asked them, you know, what do you think the longest amount of time I've spent on one move where I just sat there looking at the board and, thought what is my next move and what you know calculating all these possibilities and, and trying to uh, judge the position and the longest i've ever sp- i'm curious what do you think the longest time i've spent i was gonna one say move? one move and it must have been an extraordinary move i'm gonna say 23 minutes that's a good number. that's a lot of time that's a good, good that's a lot of time it, it i think it was an extraordinary move it turns out in that game that, that uh, <laughs> around that move was when i started to lose the thread and i lost the game but i spent about 45 minutes on the Whoa. one yeah because it was in, in a very difficult position it was the middle of the game we we both had a lot of pieces out it was pretty crowded and i kind of had to make some decisions okay do i go with this direction or that direction you know what what is my strategy which would dictate right. what happens You're, over the next 15 moves and then we'll see what happens after that it's kind of a, this is like a turning point move yeah like what's yeah. gonna happen yeah. and I, I chose i think i mean i think i'd gotten to that point and i was already a, a little bit weaker and so i i just didn't quite find the right continuation over that that span of five moves and then then i found myself in real trouble uh and I couldn't quite come back from it. So, so that was uh, the longest I've spent and the well, longest. I, and that's the thing I can't like, uh, and we've talked about this before in performing like performance anxiety, like how mm-hmm. time changes <laughs> when you're yeah. on stage. And I'm sure it's the same thing in a, in a chess tournament where, where you probably imagine, I don't know, I could, I could actually see it going both ways, but, um, but my, my guess is with your heart pumping and, and as you're thinking things through, unless you've consciously slowed your brain down, you're, you, you probably, you, you can sit on a move for five minutes and think you've been sitting there for 20. Oh yeah. Yeah. Five minutes for a single move is a long time. And, 
And I remember actually that move, boy, I was so nervous that I, I don't, I'm trying to recreate in my mind what it was like. I don't think I realized how long I'd spent because I did look at the clock every so often. I was calculating things and thinking things through for a little while. And then I would look at the clock and I was like, wow, that, that, I just spent five minutes doing a little thing. And then I forgot kind of where I was in my mental calculation. So I had to go back and recreate some of that and, and then think of it. And by the time I, I was done, you know, my opponent had already gone up and walked around the room, which uh, nowadays is a little, little tougher you have to worry about cheaters because now you can have such a powerful computer on your cell phone that uh, at the, at the oh, time that yeah. wasn't the case so it, we, we didn't have to worry about that we just had to worry are they going to go to the bathroom with a friend and like but this is this was in, in high school so um but yeah i just spent so much time and remember looking at the clock a couple times like okay well i've i've got time left you know just it's better at this point you were talking about when is it better or worse it's better to think about a really good move now and try to do my best so that later on um, my position will be better. So I won't necessarily have to spend as much time. That's the hope. Uh, yeah. A great move. But of, of course, you know, it didn't, it didn't turn out that way. I made that move. It wasn't great. And then I ended up having to really defend later. So who knows? Um, is there, is there much, uh, uh, cross talk going on? Like if, if somebody's taking, you know, upwards 20, 30 minutes to make a move, is the, is their opponent going, come on, man. Oh, what's actually going on? not at all. There is no talking in tournaments and it's extremely at, at my level, you know, when I put it's very strict, um, the tournament yeah. halls, when I've played and when I play in the world open, you know, there are a thousand people in that room playing it. Eight different divisions. Um, you could hear a pin drop. I can't imagine the the complete like it's 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 like a pressure chamber. <laughs> yeah, it, it is very quiet. And you know, I remember one of the scenes from Bobby Fish, searching for Bobby Fisher, uh, which is really cool. At the, the first tournament that he goes to, and there are all these kids lining different. Uh, you've seen the movie, right? Yes. Like yeah. And uh, all these tables, everybody, and he says, "Start your clocks," and then boom, 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 boom. You hear like all this clicking, and then everybody's mm -hmm. clicking and hitting and. Blah, blah. I'm like, that just would never happen. Maybe the first move you hear some nice clicks, but it is <laughs> silent. Um, when, when an adult tournament, you know, if you do talk, and if, if my opponent were to say something, I could actually call over an arbiter and say, uh, he's been talking to me, it, it's distracting, and, and they would give him a, a warning. And if he does that again, and I call, or even another, maybe somebody three boards down calls and says, yes, this man or this woman has been talking, it's extremely distracting. Um, they could forfeit the game. And if it becomes even wow. more than that and they get, you know, a couple more, they could forfeit the tournament. Uh, wow. So yeah, it's, it's very quiet. There's a lot of sort of mutual respect. I mean, you can give off a lot of clues with body language. And again, right. that's, that's hard to judge, but if I'm just, if I'm across my point, we, we try to play mind games too. I think everybody does a bit, you know, I might try to just look like I'm bored or I'm I like I'm totally in control of this position. Like whatever you do, it doesn't matter. And yeah, I guess I guess I, I could win now or later. You know, you you want to <laughs> give off that cool but but inside you might be like, oh, oh my gosh, this guy's crushing me. I don't know what I, I can't I can't survive this. Oh no, it's man, there's okay. a lot of nerves going on. All right, so we've just scratched the surface, but I want to end with this. Talk about the rating rating system mm -hmm. and and if you know, what does it mean to be a grandmaster? What is it what's the rating system all about? How can you know how good you are? Yeah. Yeah, so the rating system, there it's basically a number 
that you are assigned, and it goes from zero, which I mean, nobody's really zero, uh, to for a human being, approximately 2,800, so 2,800, 2,900, that's about the, the top. Uh, and actually, the current world champion has set the rating records for humans. Uh, oh, he, wow. He's broken. Do you, I'm just curious. Do you know what the record is for a computer? Oh, it's much higher. And I'll, I'll talk about that and why. Um, yeah. And, and, and actually, some of the newest neural network AIs are so strong that they have not been officially rated. It's just <laughs> they're guessed how strong. Because the, the whole idea is, could chess be solved? Is, is chess solvable um, in an esoteric sense? Like, can you just have, could God play the perfect game of chess? And the answer so far uh, through, through the ages, through let's say the last 200 years where there have been you know, real tournaments of world champions, um, the answer was no, and then yes, and then no, and then yes, kind of back and forth that somebody would be so dominant and so strong in chess, a grandmaster, quote unquote, and, and people would think, well, you can't play better than that. And then the next wave of, of future stars would rise up and just crush those people. You know, of course, you, you're at your peak for chess in your 20s and 30s, which is odd, kind of like sports. Uh, there are very few players at the top echelons that are over 40. Um, one of them is one, one of my heroes, Vishwanathan Anand who is the former world champion from India. And he's like, I think he's almost 50 now, and he's still in, in the top, uh, probably not top 15 players. Oh, maybe wow. Maybe top 10. And I mean, he's he's five to 10 years older than, than the next uh, person in that, in that group. Uh, the current world champion, Magnus Carlsen from Norway, is 20, how old is he? I don't think he's 30 yet. He's like 28, 29 right now. And um, wow. I actually, yeah, I saw him play the... So it's still a relatively young man's game, really. Relatively, yeah. And and um, yeah. we'll speak about women in chess, too, I hope, because very few women have gotten into the upper echelons of overall chess, but one did, and she was a Hungarian a woman named Judith Polgar, and her sister was f- fantastically strong, too, Susan, and Judith... Uh, or Judith, we say in the states, but you did got to I think position number eight in the world back when Kasparov wow, was the world champion. And she actually played him, and I think had a draw or maybe even beat him once. Um, she was extremely strong, uh, strongest woman ever. Uh, and right now, there's Hu Yifan, who's a Chinese player. Uh, I think she's in the top fifty overall. And there are a couple women, uh, more women that are that are getting stronger and stronger as more girls, you know, are encouraged. Yes, of course they're yeah. so basically I think it's a numbers game and we can we can talk about that. But um Yeah. Yeah, as more well, women, just so, oh, so yeah, the just ratings. To, so yeah, just finish up with the ratings. So so you have a, a master of something, it colloquially means just you're very good. But in chess there's an actual threshold for getting that number, and you have to be over that threshold to be called a master. Um Okay. So the the basic rundown is you have zero to 2,900 for humans, and every 200 points is a different class. Uh, now, we, we don't really count anything below 1,000. So one, between zero and 1,000, let's say, or zero and 800, most, uh, most of those numbers are pretty flexible. You know, a 400-rated player playing a 600-rated rated player, it's not much different. They're both making so many mistakes. It's more luck than anything. Once right. you get to about... 800 or a thousand then then you're actually a club player you're playing in tournaments you know like a 600 player would be 
when most people say, oh, my uncle plays pretty well. He's good at chess. He can beat everybody in our family. He's, he's, he's massive. Okay, so And I'm like, okay, so he's probably like, you know, a beginner. Um, that's my thought, my first thought. And yeah. if he can really play and he, he actually has some strategy, then I'd put him at like a thousand. That's okay. a thousand player. But once you get to that, then you start getting into the classes. And, and I'll start um, actually at the other end coming down. So from 2200, 2200 and above, you're considered a master. And that's just, uh, that's your class. You know, so you're in the master class. Uh, right. Now, so once, if they have a turn, if you have a tournament, you're going to have a class like, like a, you know, like a professional class and yeah. a semi, like the math, you have the master's class. That's the, that's yeah. the tournament you, would that's the top class. In. So you could, you could yeah. play in that class. Now you can always play up. I could play in that, that section, which would be really the open section, but they could not play in my section because they'd be overrated for my section. Right. So above 2200, you're considered a master. Now, once you become a master, there are different titles within being a master. There's something called a national master, an NM. There's a FIDE master, which is an FM. And to uh, get those particular titles, you have to do so well in certain tournaments and um, achieve those those ranks. Now, there are two titles which everybody knows about. Well, one really is grandmaster, and the other is mm -hmm. international master. Now, grandmaster is the top, and international master is the second. Now, uh, okay. there's not a number necessarily associated with them, but most grandmasters are over 2,500. Okay, so once you get to that special 2,500, you're basically a grandmaster. There are you're some, in that, yeah, you're in that realm. You're in that realm. Most international masters are over 2,400. Now, okay. there are some grandmasters that are 2,300. Why? Because the grandmaster title, you have to achieve it in a certain way. You have to win or get a certain score in three tournaments uh, to get what's called a GM, a grandmaster norm, uh, which is like a point, a GM point. Once you achieve three GM points or three GM norms and you keep your rating at a certain uh, level, then you're granted the grandmaster title and that's for life. So even if you're 80 years old and you've you know, obviously lost a lot of your strength, played in tournaments and your actual number rating has come down because you've lost to players that are lower rated and your number is less, let's say 23 something or 2350. You're still, you're still a honorified. Yes. Yeah. So it was kind, that kind makes of an honorary title. And so there was a famous grandmaster in the United States, Arthur Bisqueer, who I think passed away a number of years ago, but he was playing into his eighties and he was probably down to a 2300 level at his peak. He was like a 2600 level player or 20, almost 2700, yeah. but uh, he was always considered grandmaster. Same thing with international master. It's a title, honorary title that you have to achieve uh, and it can never be taken away no matter where your rating goes. Now, usually those players never go below a certain rating. They're just too strong. Um, I mean, Arthur Bisker, when he was in his 80s, could still crush me, <laughs> probably. Uh, <laughs> and so so that, those are honorary titles. They never go away. Uh, but below that, you know, if I were a master for, for a little while and then I suddenly dropped below 2,200, I'm no longer a master. You know? And so the next rating category is between 2,000 and 2,200, and that's called and again, that's kind of a colloquial term. An expert is just a great person in something. Well, in chess, it is a category called expert. Uh, you're in the expert yeah. yeah, category. That makes so sense. So if your rating is 2,143, you're an expert. Now, if your rating is 2,199, you're an expert. If you're two, But then 2,200, you're suddenly a master. 
A master. Gotcha. Yeah. And then okay. below that, you have 1,800 to 2,000. That's a ca- category A. So when somebody says, like, I'm an A category player, that is what it, and actually my rating is in the A category. So okay. um, that's where, and then 16 to 18 is a B category. 14 to 16 was a C. I spent most of my high school years in the C category. Uh, and then 12 to 14 is, is D, 1,000 to 1,200 is E. And we don't really talk about much below that because there's not much of a point of, of you know, right. It's, it's every, it's below a thousand. It's the plebs trying to make it up the ladder. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how you gain those points and there's actually a very, uh, a, uh, complicated mathematical formula, but, but if, if I simplify it, it's basically, if you play somebody in a tournament and let's say you've both played, you have to play at least 20 games or 30 games now. To have an established rating at the beginning, your rating fluctuates wildly when you first right. tournament because they don't know how strong you are. Once you've played right. thirty games, you know, or twenty games, maybe you've established your strength, and then um, <clears throat> to go up or down from there, it's much harder. So, if you're playing, let's say you're a fourteen hundred player, you played, you know, that's how I, I started out as a fifteen hundred player, then I dropped to thirteen, and I worked my way back up, and I'm eighteen something, and so. Let's say you're a 1400 player and you play another 1400 player in a tournament, and let's say you win the game. So for a win, you typically get 16 points added, and for every, uh, you're both the same, so you don't get any advantage in that regard. So if I was a 1400 player and played another 1400 player, I would gain 16 points from that. So I would be 1416 or 1416. Okay. If I gotcha. lost the same thing, I'd lose. He would lose 16 points, but he would be 1,386 after that game. Let's say I was a 1,400 player and I played a 1,500 player and I won. I would gain 16 points plus a differential of four points for every 100 points that my opponent was above me. Okay. So I would gain 16 points plus four points because my opponent was 1,500 and I was 1,400. So I would gain 20 points. I would go up to 1,420. Uh, he or she would come down to 1480. Okay, now if I were to play a 1300 player, you gain, and I won, you would um, add 16 points minus the differential of four points per hundred. So I would lose, um, I would get 16 points minus four points because they were 400, uh, 100 points lower than me. So I would gain 12 points. Does that make gotcha. sense? Gotcha. So I'd be 14, yeah, that makes 12, sense. and they would only lose uh, 12 points as well. So that, that's the approximate. So that, that's the thing. If I were a 1,400 and playing a 1,000-rated player, it's almost, I, I'd be expected to win, so I'd gain very little from it. Right. You know, I might gain yeah. one point or two points. Um, whereas the 1,000 player, if they played a 1,400 player and won, they would gain 16 points plus four times four. So they'd gain another 16. points. So that, that's quite a bit to go up 32 points. And when you're between, let's say, 1,000 and 1,400, 1, you, you can gain a lot of points quickly. Um, but once you get past that 1,500, 1,600 mark, it gets harder to gain points. Um, right, because you have to find matches that are comparable, and you have to – I mean, there's yeah. a lot of, that goes into that. Yeah. So well, that's a basic we, idea. I think um, I think this is probably a good place to pause because okay. we definitely have to do a part two. There's so, I, I we just sure. scratched the surface, yeah. but uh, but I want to thank you. This has been, I mean, I've learned a lot from it. I know I know our audience 
is uh, going to really enjoy this. And and so when you're watching the Queen's Gambit, you know what they're talking about. And uh, we're gonna- <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Queen's Gambit and maybe some computers and chess and, and online yeah, stuff. There's later. there's so much and cultural stuff. I know there's some great stuff. So, Elias, thanks again for being on the show. Oh, thanks, let's, Mike. Uh, let's do it soon. Let's do this again. Okay. Sounds good. All right. This is Mike Lovett, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. Yeah.